Let me invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and go to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. That last song we sang, those are biblical truths in there that always astound me. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may it end in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The thought of me being able to stand faultless, faultless before God is an amazing concept. And the only way that that's true, the only way that that can be possible, is if we are dressed in his, in Christ's righteousness alone. And so that is a, a, a song worthy to be uh, sung and a truth to be held near and dear to our hearts. Well, in the, Col- the book of Colossians chapter 4 here, we are coming to the end of our series going through Colossians. In fact, uh, Lord willing, we will finish our study today as we examine the last several verses of Colossians 4. It's going to be verses 10 through 18. I'll read the text in just a minute. If you're using a Bible that's in the pew, pew rack in front of you, that's page 985 if you're looking for the text this morning. But in this final section, we're going to see that there are several names mentioned here. And of note, we have, and it's interesting how they uh, three names talk uh, or connect to the, the church of Colossae. We have the apostle who influenced the start of the church. That would be Paul. He, wasn't, he was never there. He was never present, as you remember from our study. But we also have uh, uh, the current pastor there who is Archippus. And then we also have the founder, the most likely the founder, Epaphras, mentioned in this text here. So we have leadership mentioned here. We have other people mentioned here. We have uh, various names. And we're not going to look in detail of all these people, but we are going to take note of a few of these final thoughts here that Paul has. And so let me read the text, and then we'll dive into our study this morning. Verse 10 of Colossians chapter 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nyphia and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And that is the conclusion of the book. Come, some things of note there, first of all, in verse 18, when it says, I write this with my own hand, most likely what that means is that he had been using a manuensis or a secretary to write the book of Colossians. He was probably dictating that because he was in prison, and so he was chained, most people believed, uh, 24-7 to a guard of some sort, and so 
he was dictating this to somebody, whether that would be Luke or whether that be Aristarchus. We're not sure who it was, but those are two really good possibilities. But he was dictating this letter. And then at the end, he takes the pen. After he hears the letter read back to him, he says, this is what I want. And so he takes the pen and he says, I write this with my own hand. And so he signs it off at the end and he concludes this so they could see his signature. They could see that this indeed was from him. And he asks them to remember the fact that he is in change for Christ. And he ends it with grace to you. Grace be with you. Kind of summarizing the whole theme of the book there. And so Paul is passing on greetings here from people, and he's giving some final instructions here as he closes the book. And looking at the last several verses here, we see several important observations about the church here, really, and what his mind, what the apostle had in mind about the church of Colossae. And so we can parse this out, and we can look at this, and we can take some instruction of how our church should be structured, and really, what should the church of Christ look like? And so, this morning, I have two main points that, if you're taking notes, you can jot down as we go through them. But the first thing I want to look at is the membership of Christ Church. And then the second thing we'll look at is the responsibilities of Christ Church. But first, the membership of Christ Church. It's interesting here that as we look through this text here, we see, first of all, that it's a very diverse group. This is a very diverse group that he mentions here of who are part of the church here. He talks about six people in the first few verses here. Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now the interesting part about it is that three of them are Jewish and three of them are Gentiles. And so automatically here we see that it's a very diverse group that have come together here. Aristarchus is called the fellow prisoner here. Now there's a lot of debate about what does that mean. Was he indeed in prison with Paul? Most scholars don't think that that was the case. Most scholars think that he probably was so devoted to Paul that he would not leave his side and that he was ministering to him. And so he considered himself a prisoner along with him, along with Paul. We don't know for sure if that was the case. It's possible that he was also in chains as well. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is he was devoted to Paul. He was with Paul when that riot broke out in Ephesus on Paul's third mission trip. And back in the book of Acts, you, you can read about that. Um, chapter 19 of how the, there was a riot in Ephesus that broke out. And even this person here by the name of Aristarchus, he is listed in Acts chapter 19 as someone who was personally at attacked. And so it wasn't that he just liked the ministry of Paul or the ministry of the gospel from afar off. No, rather, he was involved in it, and he, he took personal harm because of the ministry. And so he was someone who was physically beaten and attacked in Ephesus for the ministry. He was very loyal and a, a very uh, uh, um, devoted to the ministry of Jesus Christ and wanted to help Paul. In fact, he was so devoted to Paul and assisting Paul, the apostle, in his ministry, that in, when Paul went on that, that voyage to Rome in Acts 27, after the third missions trip was over, and then he stood before a few people. Remember, he stood before Festus and Felix and Agrippa, and he was going through all that. And then what Paul says after when he was being held in our house arrest there and being tried, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And because of his Roman citizenship, he had the opportunity to go have his, to travel to Rome and have his case heard before Caesar. And so, 
And a lot of people think, looking back on it, that Paul may have gotten away and he would have been let off because they didn't have charges for him. But when he, he actually appealed to Caesar there, they said, fine. Agrippa said, hey, no problem. It's out of my hands. Festus said, no problem. And so they sent him on to, uh, uh, to see Caesar, to go to Rome. And so on his voyage to Rome, this is when that terrible storm came up. And you read about that in the book of Acts. You can see how this awful storm came up. And, and it, the, it was so bad that there was a shipwreck. And remember that during the shipwreck, it was, they had, uh, Paul was told, he was, he was co- coaching the people. The, the sailors were trying, in the, in the guards, they were at odds with each other on the ship. And they were trying to save their own skin. And so Paul really brought order to that situation. And then what happens is that the shipwreck happens. And so they go to this, this island where where they're, they're, they're trapped on this island. That's the, the, the scenario when Paul, he reaches into the fire, he's building a fire, and a snake comes out. I don't know if you remember this in Acts, and it bites him. And, and I love the way it's just written there because it, it, he, he, it says, and he shook it off into the fire. Okay, that's Paul. If it were Jeremy, it would have been written a little differently. It had been written, and Jeremy was building the fire, and he reached in there, and the snake came out and bit him, and Jeremy cried like a girl and screamed and ran. That would be what was written about me. But not so Paul. He just shakes it off, and then the people think, okay, surely this guy was a murderer. He's guilty. The gods are judging him. So they're waiting. They're just watching him, waiting for him to drop dead. Then what I love this, I love this. It's like, wait a minute. He's still alive. He's a God. (laughs) The fickleness of man. They go from he's a murderer to he's a God. Okay, this is what's happening here. Aristarchus was with Paul on that trip. Aristarchus was the one who, he he endured this suffering. He was one who endured that shipwreck here. And so we see that these are people who are very close to Paul. And he was a Jew, and he understood what that meant. Mark is listed here. And he's listed as the cousin of Paul. I mean, excuse me, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, some of you may have a translation, particularly an older translation, like a King James Version, that may say nephew of Barnabas. Uh, Just as an interesting note, in case you're curious about that, why it says in this text, cousin, and in other translations it says nephew. The word that's been translated or that's behind this word uh, did mean nephew, but not until after the first century. And so prior to the first century, what the word meant, or the first century and prior to that, the word meant cousin. And so it just was a word that changed over time like words do. And so if you have an older translation, they probably just didn't go back far enough in looking at that word. But it really means that he was cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas, of course, means son of consolation or son of encouragement. He was a person who was wealthy, most likely. Barnabas was someone who was key in starting the church. You can read about him in the beginning of Acts. And he was the one who went with Paul on the first missions trip. You remember Paul and Barnabas went together, and John Mark accompanied him. And this is who is part of this group here that Paul mentions. The third person, Jesus Justice, the third Jew, he is someone who we really don't know much about. In fact, we don't know anything about. The only thing we know about him is that he's not the Jesus. And that is the reason why he says, who is called Justice there. He is the one who is, in what Paul is doing there, he's pointing out that it's not the Jesus. And Jesus also was a name that was used 
uh, commonly during that time. And so these are the people he mentions. But also, those are the Jews. Now, who are the Gentiles that he mentions? Well, he mentions Epaphras, who is the founder of the church. He says, who is one of you? What that means is he was a Colossian. He was from that city. He was someone who had founded that church, and he was someone who had gone to Ephesus, and he had understood the gospel, and he was converted through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and went back to his hometown and started the church, and now he is no longer the pastor there. He, he served there well. He got the church going, and now he's doing other ministries in other areas, and Paul takes time to say he's doing a good thing, and he is working hard. Understand that. Maybe they felt abandoned by their former pastor. Maybe they felt that his departure was not on best terms. I don't know what the situation was. But what I do know is that Paul wants to encourage them to understand that their former pastor is serving Christ in another location. And he was a Gentile. Luke is mentioned here in verse 14. And it's interesting that it says the beloved physician. It is because of this text right here. This is the only reason that we know that Luke was a doctor. This is the only place that's mentioned that he was a physician. And so if you've known that Luke's occupation, if you've known that Bible trivia, inadvertently it's because of this text here. This is the only place where we know about him. We understand that he's beloved. We understand that he was someone who worked very difficult and through difficult circumstances with the apostle. In fact, if you were to read the book of Acts, and Acts is my all-time favorite book of the Bible to study and to teach through, you would see that throughout the book of Acts, you would see that there are several times where there's what's called, the theologians called the we sections. And what that means is that those are times where Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, he was one who was in those situations. Several instances come to mind. Uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, Acts chapter 9, all these things, we see different times where, uh, the, uh, where Luke was with the apostle and working very diligently here. Then we have Demas here. Now, we don't know much about Demas. We, we find him mentioned one or two other times in the scriptures, and we will talk about him a little bit later on, but he is the third Gentile that's mentioned here. Now, it's important to understand that there's these Jews and Gentiles listed together. Why am I making a point of that? Because we need to understand that there was enormous tension between Jews and Gentiles. We cannot overlook this important point. In fact, that's alluded to in the text when he says here in verse Verse uh, 11, these are the only men of the circumcision, or Jews, these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. He says these are the only ones who are willing to serve with me with this gospel of Jesus Christ that is very inclusive, that brings Jews and Gentiles together. And from the beginning, Jesus had demonstrated that that was the point of the gospel. The intent of the gospel was to radically tear down barriers, And so think John chapter 4. We think of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. What he did there is he was radically tearing down barriers. He was tearing down a barrier of of, a race and of a a Jew and a Samaritan, the half-breeds, who they had nothing but contempt for each other and hated each other. And you can see that in that that John 4 text of even the way the, uh, the woman talked to Jesus there. And so secondly, it was not just racially, but it was gender. He was crossing those bounds as well and interacting with a woman that in that culture was not acceptable. And so the intent of the gospel from the beginning was to bring people who were opposed 
those, a diverse group together. And let me submit that that is the purpose of our church, and our church should be a place where people from different tongue, nation, tribe, background, they can come together, and we are one people before God. And so the membership of the Church of Christ is a very diverse group here. There's a couple references, if you're taking notes, you can write down about this. One is found in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3, excuse me, in verse 11. It says, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The, the point of the gospel is to bring people together. And then Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The membership of Christ Church is a very diverse group. Now, the reason why we have to work hard in that is because we tend to be most comfortable in monocultural settings. We tend to be at most at ease when everyone else around us is like us or agrees with us. Think of conversations you have at work. Think of people or maybe family members, the family members that have your political leanings or the family members that have your religious beliefs, those you have ease of conversation with. But there's always that weird uncle, right? (laughs) There's always that guy in your family that when you get together, you just know that he's got those weird beliefs about something and there's tension there, right? Sometimes. In the church of Jesus Christ, It's people, according to Revelation, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I submit to you that we need to endeavor to have people from a diversity of background and that we would accept them in our church and that we would get along. You see, apparently only the three people, the three Jews named here, were willing to help Paul. The Gentiles of Rome were ready to mix. The Gentiles of Rome were ready to have this inclusive relationship and bringing people together all under the name of a Christian or the name of Jesus Christ. But that wasn't so with the Jewish believers, apparently, according to this text. They legalistically demanded that the Gentiles be circumcised and follow Jewish ceremonial law here. They weren't willing to mix. and They weren't willing to to come together. So the question I have as I think about this is as we look at the fact that there was disdain for one another. They were hard to get along. Who is your equivalent outcast today? Who do you have a hard time accepting? It's incorrect to have any. You and I both know that. But most people don't live in a perfect social world of political correctness. That's not where we live. Christ changes everything, and in Christ we love across boundaries and minister to people with habits and lifestyle preferences quite unlike our own. That is how the church grows. And so who is it that you struggle with? What type of person? Is it their background? You know, the more I talk with people and everyone claims not to be racist, and, and I think it's because none of us want to be racist. The fact of the matter is, I think if we dig deep down, we can see racial tendencies in all of us. Who is it? That's not always black and white. It could be any type 
Or maybe as people in types of personalities. Or maybe as people in the way they choose to educate their children. Or the way they choose to parent their children. Or don't parent their children. Who is it that when you look at you say, that is a hard person for me to get along with. The church of Jesus Christ should be made up of lots of different types of people. And if we need to help people, we need to help people. But the fact of the matter is, is that as we see Christ putting people together, we're going to see people that are different than us, and sometimes it causes a stretching out of our comfort zone. We need to be people who long to be a diverse group under the name of Christ. As long as Christ is named there, there we can get along. To love is to risk. If you, wait, if you wait for guarantees to come that people won't disappoint you, you will never enjoy any relationship at all. And so this was a, a hugely diverse group. They weren't perfect. They had problems. They were sinners. And that leads us to the second type of who these members, the people of membership were, and that not only were, were, were they a diverse group, but they were a broken group. They were a broken group. Look at the people that are mentioned here. I didn't read this text. Uh, this in the text in verse 9. That today, last week, we talked about a guy by the name of Onesimus. Who was Onesimus? Who was part of this ministry here of bringing word to the Colossians. And he was part of the ministry of Paul here. He was someone who was, he was a runaway slave, as we looked at last week. He was somebody who most likely stole great sums from Philemon. And Paul went to bat and tried to restore that relationship because Onesimus repented and became a Christ follower here. This was a broken group of people who make up this church or make up the church of Jesus Christ. We are people who are flawed. We are people who don't have it together. We are people who are weak and we have sin and we have past and we have failures. This is the membership of the church of Christ. We have Mark listed there. You know Mark, and I mentioned earlier that he accompany Paul and Barnabas on that first mission trip in Acts chapter 13. And we see that he went there and at some point during the ministry, he, he, I, we don't know why, but he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. We don't understand all what was the reasoning behind it, but he deserted them and he went back home. Some people think he was afraid. Some people think that he just couldn't hack it. We don't know what the reason was, but we do know that Paul did not buy his rationale. We know that Paul became very irate about this and to the point of when the second missions trip was going, when they were planning the second trip, Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go. Barnabas says, I'd like to take my cousin with me, John Mark. Let's bring him again. Paul says, absolutely not. He abandoned us. He deserted us. He will not come. We, we only need people who are devoted and who can stick it out. That's who we need. And Barnabas said, no, you've got to give this guy a chance. You've got to help him grow. You've got to minister to him through this. You can't just cast him aside. And so there was such a strong disagreement between Paul and between Barnabas that they went separate ways. Barnabas took John Mark with him. Paul recruited Silas, and he went his way. Barnabas went his way with his team. There's a huge division here because of the desertion of John Mark. He was somebody who couldn't be counted on. It's a broken group that we have here. But later on we see here, we see that, that Mark, he has 
obviously obtained favor. In fact, later on in Timothy, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, bring Mark, for he is profitable to me. 10, 12, 15 years later, he had redeemed himself. And how? We don't know exactly how, but we can surmise some things. First of all, probably that the fact that he, uh, Mark interacted with Barnabas helped him grow, and he was encouraging Barnabas was called the son of consolation or the encourager. And no doubt he was encouraging John Mark, so that probably played a factor. Probably Paul's stern rebuke of him played a factor in this. And the fact that he said, no, we need someone serious who will minister through adversity. But also probably the person called Peter ministered to him. Later on in 1 Peter, we see that he refers to Mark as my son, which was a term that meant endearment, someone that he had influenced spiritually. So Mark had people investing in him that caused him to grow. There was encouragement there, and we'll come back to that point in just a few minutes here. But my point is, is this is not a flawless team here. This is a people This is a group of people who are broken. They have faults. They have failures. They have sins. Then we have this man by the name of Demas. Verse 14, he's the only name where there's not adjectives given or a little bit more explanation about him. It just says, as does Demas. We know later on that Paul says that Demas has forsaken me. He has loved this present world and gone to Thessalonica. I read that in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. So this is a broken group. This is not people who are flawless. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the heroes have faults. The heroes have warts. The heroes have failures. And I find encouragement because this is encouraging because failures will happen. You will sin. I will sin. We will show our brokenness. But what I see in at least two of those examples is that failure does not need to be the final word about us. Because of Christ who has saved us, he has given us his righteousness, and then he's given us the ability to grow through the sanctification process. C.S. Lewis said this, I put it on the screen, said this, no amount of falls will, will really undo us if we just keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels put out, and the clean clothes and the airing covered. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and to give up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. It's the very sign of His presence. Now, obviously, the Christian life isn't simply a matter of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and just doing better. And C.S. Lewis doesn't mean that when he says this by understanding the whole totality of his writings. But the only way for a believer to progress in the Christian life is to cry out to God for gracious enablement and then take the next step. There's a sense that we must act, but but the Christian can only act in the power of God. And so when we see what we see here, and in front of the quote that, that was up there, we see the fact that what, 
We are going to have failures. Our Christian pilgrimage, we are going to get muddy. We are going to, our clothes are going to get tattered. But like C.S. Lewis said, when we notice the dirt, that is when God is most present in us because we see our need for him. We see the need for Christ's forgiveness. And we see that we have no righteousness at that point. There is no pretense about us at that point. So if you've come to church today struggling with your sinfulness, if you've come today burdened and weighed down by your, your, your failures and your inabilities and your inadequacies. Let me say, praise God and understand that this is not to keep you down. This is not to discourage you, but rather see Christ in his righteousness and your need for that in your present situation. We're a broken people. The membership of Christ Church is not all-stars. We're not made of all-stars. We're not people who have our own righteousness. Rather, as illustrated here, we are diverse people who come from all different backgrounds and are different, but we also are people who have the same need, and that is Christ and His righteousness, because we're a broken people. So that's the membership of the church. In the last couple minutes, let me share with you some responsibilities I see from this text. The responsibilities of Christ's church. Epaphras has talked about in verse 12 that he is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you and he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. First of all, we need to be praying for each other. As Christ, as people in Christ's church, we need to be praying for for one another. If you're taking notes, you can cross-reference chapter 2 and verse 1. The same word is used there, but this word struggling means exerting great energy. It means like an athlete who is straining to cross the finish line. I love those pictures in the Olympics, and that's the only time I watch track and field. Does anyone else watch, watch track and field other than the Olympics? Didn't think so. Um, so we have, oh, we have, we have one. We, we have one. All right. What, high jump or what, what, what did you get? <laughs> but um, so, I, I mean, I, I love watching it, but, you know, that's the only time I see it. But I love seeing, like, uh, uh, runners like Usain Bolt. And he's, he's coming across the finish line. And at that last moment, everyone just kind of lunges forward. And, and you get that snapshot. And you see every muscle just being strained and trying to get forward in that, 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 that millimeter ahead of someone else. That's the picture here. That's straining. That he's giving it all he has here. I had the privilege of being in Jamaica on a mission trip after Hurricane Dean went through. We went down there and, and helped do some rebuilding and minister to people. I was doing children's ministry uh, for the, uh, the Jamaicans there. And, and uh, um, it was during the Olympics when Usain Bolt was, was running, and so I was, I was able to get around a TV, a television set with a whole bunch of Jamaicans and uh, watch them celebrate uh, Usain Bolt. It, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. I have a video of it on my computer, and uh, at one point, one of the ladies, everyone was so happy. They were, they were jumping up and down. They were cheering. One lady, they, they, they had a close-up picture on the television of Usain Bolt, and one lady ran up to the TV and just, <laughs> just put a big kiss on this television. She was so excited because Jamaica was on the map because of him. He had strained, he had struggled, and he won. 
hear in our prayers. We are to struggle in that. It's not easy praying for one another. Uh, one person wrote, it says, if you ever want someone to get uh, humbled quickly, ask them about their prayer life. Okay? We need to struggle in prayer for each other. You know, you don't have to do this now, but just take a quick look around the room, even mentally, and just think, who have I prayed for in the last month that are sitting right here? See, the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be people who are praying for one another. We have spiritual needs. We need people to uphold us. You know, as a pastor, I, I tend to, to get to know more about people and their stories and their backgrounds and their present burdens. Let me tell you, every one of us has burdens that sometimes we don't know how to deal with. We don't know what, what the right course of action is. Let me just encourage you to grab the church directory and just choose a few names and just pray for them every day. I guarantee it they could use it. The church of Jesus Christ is a church that prays for one another. And Epaphras, he made it his goal to struggle in praying for each other. What did he pray for? He prayed for maturity. He prayed that they would have an understanding of what God was doing, what God's will was doing in their lives. These are the things that he was praying for. Secondly, as we look at the responsibilities, and we only have three in total, so secondly is... I see a, a commitment to the word here. I see that what Paul is telling them to do, he says in verse 16, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so he said, share this letter, share this back and forth, and it's authoritative, be committed to this. And there's a lot of debate about what that letter to Laodicea is. Uh, uh, one of the standard commentaries, uh, commentators on the book of Colossians, his last name is Lightfoot. He holds the theory, which is the standard theory, but in recent times has been getting less and less um, support but that that is the circular letter that we know as Ephesians, and that the book of Ephesians was intended to be read and circled around. Uh, like I said, that's a possibility. It's getting less and less uh, uh, support as, as scholarship goes on. Uh, another idea of it is that it was a, it was a letter uh, that is lost. That's where I'm at. I think it was probably just a letter that has not been preserved for us for whatever reason. It doesn't really matter. All of what matters is that the apostle was concerned about communicating scriptural truths to one another and, and that they were sharing that. And he says, and read it to them. And so he wanted them to have these specific letters read and uh, listened to. Even though, and it's interesting to me, because even though there's specific application here, because in, in Colossians here, he says, and um, talking about Epaphras, who is one of you. So he's being very personal and very specific to the church of Colossae. But then he wants that same letter read to the Laodiceans. Even though there's specific application here, he sees that the principles uh, that he writes about would be of benefit to people in a different context. And that is where we're at. We're in a different context, and we are receiving benefit from this. So there's a commitment to the word. And finally... There was, if we're going to be responsible members of the Church of Christ, we need to encourage one another. 
Verse 17, it says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Did you see that? It says, Say to Archippus. Now, Paul was not afraid of, uh, of talking to people directly. He did that in Philippians. He's done it other times in, the, in his writings. But yet he says here, he tells the church, you say to Archippus. And so he's not saying there, here's what I want Archippus to understand. So Archippus, pay attention here. No, he says to their, the church, to the Colossian church, he says, here's what I want you to say to your pastor. The pastor who is ministering among you, this is what I want you to say to him. Paul, is, he could have just said, Archippus, here's what I want you to know. But that's not what he does here. He says, you as a church, say this to Archippus. Fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. He's telling them to encourage him, that the church should be encouraging their pastor to do the work that God has given him to do. That they should be encouraging him and that they should be uplifting him and trying to help him do the work as he is trying to encourage them and train them. So Paul could have given the instruction directly to Archippus, but he didn't. He told the church to be the source of encouragement to their pastor as the pastor was trying to be an encouragement to them find that very instructive as, as, as a responsibility of a church. And so we need to be encouraging to our spiritual leaders. If the church was to constantly remind their pastor to ensure that he was able to fulfill the God-given ministry, surely they would do everything in their power to help him do just that. And we also saw last week that encouragement was a major part of Paul's ministry here. We saw that in verse 8. And encouragement and thankfulness always go together. The more thankful we are, the more encouraging we will be. And so the responsibilities of Christ church, pray earnestly for one another. Be committed to the word. Encourage one another. Seek out ways to encourage your fellow church members, including your pastor. Encourage one another because it's a biblical thing to do and it's being obedient to the scriptures here. So, let me ask you just a few questions in closing. Do you want our church to be a diverse group? Are we satisfied with monoculturalism? Are we holding back because of our, fa our, our past failures or brokenness? We've had encouragement this morning that that is not reason to hold back. Are you praying for one another? We've seen that it's hard work to remember and to struggle in prayer, but we must do that. Are we committed to the word being preached and taught? Are we making ourselves, uh, are we taking advantage of the teaching opportunities that we have? And are we encouraging one another? As Paul closes this letter, I believe these are some applications that we can take from this because i believe that if we do this when false teaching comes in like it started to come into the book of Colossians, to the people of Colossae, we will be able to combat that if we're committed to the word and we're praying we're encouraging one another and we understand that we're, we're people who need god's grace every day and that we don't have all the answers ourselves i believe that we can be strong a strong church for Jesus Christ. That is my goal. And I know that's your goal as well. So let us, this week, as we go back to work and we go back to our normal lives, be praying for one another. Encourage one another. Be committed to the word. Let us pray.